0: There's a new building that was opened last year for our uh, centenary. Uh, looks very different from when I was studying there, when Andy was studying there back uh, 20 years ago now. Um, what's been going on in that area in uh, North Ryde, uh, Macquarie Park area, is phenomenal. It's gone from being Chook Farms back in the 1950s and 60s to now being one of the university and tech hubs in Sydney. Uh, We suddenly found ourselves sitting on land that we weren't utilising like all of our neighbours were. Uh, And so we've uh, sold off about a third of that to be able to fund theological education into the future. So we're almost at the end of that very long process. We have about two, two and a half years to go till we've redeveloped the campus. Uh, But the main way for doing that is not to build buildings. The main thing to do is to be able to serve the churches better, both people who come onto campus to learn and to study, uh, but also people who uh, learn online. We're investing a lot of money and a lot of um, people's resources into being able to put our material online and do quality training, not just you know, the old days, here's a book, get back to us at the end of semester, but to be able to engage with other students via video conferencing, uh, to be able to access the same kind of materials and the same kind of tuition that those on campus are. So it's an exciting time to be part of Mauling and the reason we're talking about it with you is that it's your college. Uh, It belongs to the denomination. Uh, I don't know if you sort of think of it in that way, but we would appreciate your prayers and your support in that way. Uh, But we also want to remind you of the fact that although our main business is still raising up uh, leaders, pastors, missionaries for the future, that is only part of what we do. Uh, A lot of the people who study at Morling are doing so not necessarily to be called by God into some kind of full-time ministry but to be better equipped uh, to be teachers, to be people in their workplace who are able to contribute to their local communities, to their local churches uh, in a more theologically informed way. So that's why we run evening classes, that's why we run some hubs in Western and and Southern Sydney, Uh, that's why we put a lot of stuff online because we want people all over New South Wales and ACT uh, to be able to be equipped in this way. Uh, We don't just teach theology, we also teach Christian counselling. And we have some uh, rather innovative education courses for those who are teachers and wanting to do further training in Christian leadership uh, and other forms of Christian teaching, whether you be in a Christian school or a state school. Uh, we would love to be able to, to work with you on that too. So that's just a quick overview. Um, I should mention our gap year program for those who are 18 to 23 as well. That's uh, a really exciting kind of hands-on learning experience for a year there. Uh, so if you're interested in any of that, uh, please come and chat to me afterwards. That is one of the reasons I'm here is to sort of be able to link you with any of the mauling programs you might be interested in. Uh, but of course the other reason I'm here is to be able to share God's word with you and I'll be doing that a little bit later. But thanks again for having me this morning. Yeah, thank you. So <laughs> yeah.
1: um, Let's just pray for mauling, hey? Lift up mauling to God. Lord we just thank you. We just look at that video and I'm amazed at how much it's changed and I know that Andy would be blown away as well Lord. Wouldn't even recognise it I'm sure if you walked through it. Father we thank you for your provision. We thank you so much for the way in which you exponentially increase everything that um, you want to throw your blessing onto, Lord. And we really thank you and praise you for mauling and what it's doing in equipping leaders, Lord, to go out and just bless people with your word. Open up your word, Lord. And we thank you so much for Tim being here with us this morning. Amen. We're going to take up the offering now. And um, as we do, Carol, just give us a bit of a shout out. How did you go last week? Carol, remember we prayed for Carol last week? She was doing a very big race. If you didn't hear that, 21 Ks in five hours. First half marathon, well done. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Yes. Serving drinks to her. And next weekend, Carol and I are participating in something called Miss Muddy. So we're going to be... Yeah, so we're going to come on Sunday, hopefully with all the mud removed. <laughs> As we um, take up our offering, Father, we just thank you so much for the way that you provide for this church, for your family right here in Blackheath. Lord, we just pray for those, Father, who um, are just dealing with your provision, that Lord, we give so much... To of ourselves sometimes Lord and yet it's really hard to hand over sometimes our finances but Father I pray that as we do those who you've given the wisdom to for this church and how our finances are spent here Lord you would just pour out your wisdom keep pouring out your wisdom to them Lord that they would know where you want your finances for this church to go Lord we thank you for the community you've placed us in and we just pray that we might be able to extend whatever we have to the community around us amen
2: can you please dance?
1: For us, Lord, and help us to remember that in our day to day lives, Lord. Amen. Can you please take your seats as we welcome Tim to come up?
0: Well, hi again. Um, As we we come to the sermon, let me first uh, read the passage of scripture we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, so if you've got your Bibles in front of you or your phones, switch from Facebook now to the Bible app, it'd be (laughs) great. Yeah, I teach Gen Y. Um, And we're going to be reading from verse 13 to 16, Matthew 5 verses 13 through to 16, nice short reading. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you are the salt of the earth. Let me pray that God would speak to us this morning. Father, a short, probably quite simple reading, but full of profound truth for who you want us to be as your people. Father, help us to be challenged by this word this morning, that we would indeed be salt and light. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a church where a children's talk hasn't quite gone to plan? or an object lesson that hasn't quite had unexpected consequences. Um, That happened to me once. A few years ago in my church, when I was preaching on this passage, I tried to demonstrate the benefits of salt and light. So I I got a volunteer. Now, I use the term very loosely. I made our associate pastor come up, uh, sat him down, blindfolded him, and then while he couldn't see, but the rest of us could, I made a salt sandwich in full view and made him eat it. Now, I didn't know he was a little bit sensitive to taste and he started to gag on it. I think even a little bit of mouth vomit came out. And so he kind of reached up, ripped off the blindfold to see what he'd been eating, at which point I shone a powerful torch in his face. (laughs) Turns out with his migraines and stuff, he's a bit light sensitive and let's just say he wasn't too impressed with me. The role of an associate pastor isn't always the happy one, but when we as Christians try to be salt and light in the world, how often is that the result? That we get in people's faces and leave a bad taste in their mouth. Is that what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount that we just read that when he said that we're to be salt of the earth and light of the world? I mean, what does it mean exactly to be salt and light? Well, it's more complicated than you'd think. As in the ancient world, salt had quite a variety of connotations. Uh, for a start, it was used as a preservative in an age uh, before refrigeration. Uh, It was used to add flavour to food when meals were pretty bland and spices were very hard to come by. Uh, I think you see relics of this era even today. Uh, For me, if I go and visit my grandparents, they'll sit down to a perfectly good meal, back up a truck to the dinner table and just smother the plate with a truckload of salt, right? Uh, My mother-in-law even gets extra salt sachets at McDonald's for fries. Like That's how serious she is. So salt is the ever-present seasoning that gives life and flavor to the world. It was also used as a metaphor for wisdom and as an additive to manure, uh, which may make sense of the trampling underfoot comment in verse 13. What I'm saying is we're not short of options here as to what Jesus is getting at when he talks about salt. But it's also paired with this idea of light that we're gonna look at in a moment. So probably it's got to do with salt's role as a flavoring agent. Jesus is saying to his followers, those who will inherit the kingdom of God, he's saying that we are to be the seasoning of the world. We're to be the chilli powder if you're in Mexico, uh, the curry if you're in India, the coriander if you're in Thailand, uh, the smoky barbecue sauce if you're my eldest son. (laughs) The point is, regardless of the precise meaning of this metaphor, we're to stand out and be noticed. Salt is noticed. And this is even clearer with the light imagery. Uh, We're to be a light that can't be hidden. Uh, A city on a hill in the middle of rural Palestine can't be missed, it can't be hidden. Well, I think I'm I'm hiding it slightly for some of you now. That's what that is, isn't it? City on a hill. Um, So we are to be there to shine and not be hidden. We're to stand out and be noticed by everyone around us. A light's also there to guide the way, whether it be literally in the dark or metaphorically, as we search for truth and meaning in life. where to be the light that people notice, the light that guides people who are living in darkness. But as much as I love metaphors, they still leave us a bit fuzzy, don't they? I mean, what does this idea of being salt and light look like when it's lived out by actual living people? To understand this, we need to spend a bit of time looking at context. Uh, two contexts, in fact. Uh, there's the obvious context of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that We'll look at that in a minute. There's also a much bigger picture context, the story of God's dealings with humanity right throughout the Old Testament. You see, God's been working with this idea of salt and light long before Jesus turned up. Uh, back when he looked around at the mess that the world had become, and said to a hairy nomad named Abraham, "Uh, pack your bags, I'm going to start with you. And he started to bless him, look after him, have a special relationship with him. Not because he wanted to play favourites, but because he wanted the rest of the world to sit up and take notice. I hear there's lots of school teachers around here, right? So it's like a school teacher at the end of the day, faced with a class of unruly kids, quietly just giving an early mark to the one kid who is sitting there obediently. And then the next one, and the next. Until pretty soon the whole class is at least able to see the benefits of behaving the way the teacher wants. God starts with Abraham. But it wasn't just Abraham he had in mind, it was the whole world. I mean, right from the beginning when he called Abraham, one of the most important passages of the Old Testament, he says in Genesis 12, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it comes. And all the peoples on earth, all the families of the world will be blessed through you. And so the plan begins. Soon not just with Abraham, but with the nation he'd father, Israel. God's special people, chosen to be a living advertisement to the world of what life was like when God was on your side, when you lived it the way God intended it to be, so that the nations around would sit up and take notice. And we're used to the Old Testament where kind of Israel always sort of failed, don't they? But sometimes the plan actually worked. We often forget that. There were times when Israel did trust in God There were times when they didn't try to be like the nations around, chasing after foreign gods or relying on military alliances, but they actually relied on God and sometimes the plan worked. We get a glimpse of this, how this was supposed to work in one of my favourite Old Testament stories, the story of Rahab, Joshua chapter 2. We read that Israel was camped at Shittim, an irrelevant detail but amusing I think, and they're about to cross the Jordan River and take the city of Jericho. But Joshua sends some spies to check things out first. And the spies, you know, the story, they cunningly decide to hide themselves in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. But they get noticed by the king's guards. And so the king sends a message to uh, Rahab to give the men up. So what does Rahab do? Well, putting her own life in danger, she hides the men and sends the guards off in the opposite direction. And if you stop at that point of the story, you just go, why? Why would she do that? Well, the reason she gives is the whole point of the story. I want you to listen closely to this. This is from Joshua chapter 2 and this is her answer. She says to the spies, we, city of Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. You see what's happening there? Ahab sees it. She sees what it's like when God is on your side. She comes to realise that Yahweh is Israel's God is nothing less than the true God in heaven above and on the earth below and so she changes sides faster than Bill Shorten in a leadership spill and joins God's people. In fact, Joshua chapter 6 goes on to record that she was spared when Israel took Jericho and it says she lives among the Israelites to this day. She became part of God's people. We see this pattern repeated in the story of Naaman from the nearby nation of Aram commander in the army, uh, he he gets leprosy. When he hears of this miracle worker, Elisha uh, in Israel, he travels to see him. Ends up going home healed from his leprosy but a worshipper of the one true God. We see it again at the height of King Solomon's reign where rulers from other nations uh, like the the famed Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon to inquire of his wisdom, realising that there was something special going on there that God had done this for Solomon. In 1 Kings 10, we see that the queen of Sheba said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. This is how it was supposed to work all the time. Now you know the stories, most of the time Israel failed at their task, didn't they? Their light dimmed, their salt lost its saltiness. They ended up living just like the nations around rather than standing out and being noticed. And that is the tragedy that plays out through most of the Old Testament. But still, still there was this expectation that one day Israel would live up to her calling. A promise found several times in the prophet Isaiah that Israel would indeed do her job of being a light to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. Not just a light, but that city on a hill to which the nations can come and find truth. They can come and find God. Isaiah says in the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. Before Jesus turned up, That's what God's faithful ones in Israel were looking forward to. Looking forward to a time when God would truly reign in Israel and his people would do their job of being a light to the nations. So when Jesus does turn up and says right near the start of the Sermon on the Mount, essentially one of the first big public speeches he gives in Matthew's Gospel, when he says to his hearers, you are the salt of the earth, You are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. Do you get what's going on? He's telling them, you here now, God's people, are at last going to do your job. Not just you, but of course us too. In fact, just before Jesus talks about salt and light, he's preached the Beatitudes. All those blessing statements, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they blessed? because the kingdom of God's coming. And the kingdom of God is good news for those who are poor. It's good news for the meek because the kingdom belongs to them and they will inherit the promised land. It's good news for those who want God to come and put things right because that is what the kingdom is all about. God's rule among his people. God's, God's people living the way they were intended to live. And that's why straight after this good news announcement about the kingdom of God, we get this powerful statement we read out before about what those in his kingdom are supposed to be. That it'd be salt and light to stand out so that this world takes notice. Kind of like a living advertisement that says, this is what it looks like when God's people live God's way. With the implicit message, if you like what you see, hey, come and join us. Just like Rahab did just like Naaman did, just like the image in Isaiah of the nation streaming to that city on a hill. So how are God's people to live as salt and light? Well, that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount's about and we haven't got time to go through that this morning. But the basic premise can be summed up in the final verse of chapter 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect echoes a rather famous refrain from the Old Testament taken from Leviticus where God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Again, Do you see the connection? In both Old and New Testaments, the message is the same. Live in such a way as you reflect the character of God to the world. Be holy as I am holy or be perfect as God is perfect or as it says in verse 16 of our reading today, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt and light. It's pretty simple, really. Live your life the way God intended to. And when you do that, you will stand out. You will be salty. People will take notice. And when they do, be ready to tell them why so they know that it's because of God. And we could stop there and just reflect on how well we are being salt and light, what we might need to change about our lives to to better reflect who God is, better reflect God to the world. And we're going to do that soon in response to the message. But there is one little bit of the passage we haven't dealt with properly. Verse 13, we're going to take another look at that starts the passage he says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men don't you find that verse a little bit jarring a bit out of place i mean the whole opening of the sermon on the mount has been about good news right rejoice be blessed the kingdom of god is at hand and it's your job the people of the kingdom to live out kingdom values, be salt and light. I mean all positive messages. And here Jesus just kind of goes off in a bit of a tangent for a second. This a bit about salt losing its saltiness and some kind of ominous warning about being trampled. Then he gets back on with the positive stuff again. What's going on here? I mean the first question I think we have to ask of this is can salt actually lose its saltiness? We have any scientists here? No? So if you've studied uh, chemistry, you can say, well, yes, it can lose its saltiness. If you use electrolysis, you can turn it into caustic soda. That's the chemical formula for anyone who cares. Uh, And making it salty again just involves adding some hydrochloric acid and evaporating water. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind there. (laughs) Commentators are divided on whether Jesus' audience would have thought it possible for salt to lose its saltiness. Uh, Some say that the salt deposits in the Dead Sea are so impure that they can leave unsalty salt when all of the sodium chloride dissolves and leaving salt that actually doesn't taste salty. In other words, they say unsalty salt is a real possibility. And so Jesus is at least saying that it's impossible to re-salt it once it's lost it, at least humanly speaking. So that's one way of looking at it. But there's an interesting story from late in the first century which gives us another possibility. It's the story of a Jewish rabbi who was asked, when salt becomes unsalty, how is it salted again? And the rabbi gives this wonderful punchline with the afterbirth of a mule. Yeah, the hilarity of the answer was initially lost on me too. (laughs) Until you remember, anyone know what's special about a mule? No? They're crossed between a horse and a donkey. They're a half-breed and they're sterile. They can't reproduce. So there is no such thing as the afterbirth of a mule, which is the rabbi's point. He goes on to say, and is there an afterbirth of a mule? Can, Can salt be unsalty? Of course not, Is what he wants his hearers to say. Ask me a stupid question, you'll get a stupid answer. Involving mules. There's no such thing as unsalty salt. Now, although the record of this story dates to a little while after Jesus, it shows that Jesus might have been drawing on a well-known saying or story in the first century, which is why it may, on face value, appear to be a bit of a tangent, but it isn't if you know the background. So this could be Jesus' way of pointing out how absurd it is for salt to be anything but salty. I mean, that's what it is. It's salt. And if it isn't salty, it isn't salt. It wasn't salt in the first place. So in other words, if you belong to the kingdom of God, then you are the salt of the earth and you can't help but being salty because that's who you are. And if you're not, well, maybe you're not in the kingdom of God. So again, how can we be salt and light? The answer is simply be who you are. As follower of of Jesus, just get out there and live up to your identity as the children of God. Yeah, From what I'm told by Andy and stuff, he tells me you're a generally good, god, godly bunch of Christians, right? <laughs> treat, treat one another with love, that sort of thing. So if you want to be salt and light, just do what you do among yourselves, but do it out there in view of the people. It's not rocket science. Don't hide when you do things differently from the world. Flaunt it. Don't avoid mentioning on Monday morning that you went to church each week. Don't pretend that you're out partying on Friday nights if you're really leading youth group. Go out of your way to point out how you live differently. Don't allow people to think that you treat others at your school or your workplace or your seniors group with respect and concern just because you happen to be a nice person. Let them know it's because you're a follower of Jesus and followers of Jesus can do nothing else. Don't allow them to think that your servant attitude is because of low self-esteem or a martyr complex. Let them know it's in imitation of your Lord and Saviour. How are we to be salt and light? I mean, just be who you are. But be obvious about it. Don't put that light under a bowl, let it shine. So they might see your good deeds. They might see a different way to live. They might see a glimpse of the life God intended and say, you know, just like Rahab and Naaman did, I've got to get me some of that. So that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So that your Father in heaven becomes their Father too. So how how does that work for you practically? That's what I'm going to get you to discuss with one another in, in a few minutes. So... Morning, you have to talk to one another, but you seem to be all right doing that in the is it Mad Minute or whatever it's called. Yeah. Minute Madness, thank you. Um, but let me make one observation about how this has worked in the church that I've been a part of for the past couple of decades. When people who don't know Jesus have come to faith in him and become part of his kingdom through my church, most of the time it hasn't be, been because of some awesome program our, our church has run. That's been a part of it. Certainly our youth program attracts kids from all around the place, our kids programs do. But it hasn't been because of the program per se. Most of the time it hasn't been due to a powerful gospel message given by a a guest preacher at an outreach event. Although for some people they've been part of the process. Most of the time it hasn't been because someone in our church has done an evangelism training course And then over the course of a series of coffees or barbecues or dinners has expertly answered all their questions and led them to repentance and faith. Although sometimes that has played a role. Now most of the time, do you know what has happened? People have just become part of our local church community. Whether it be as something as innocuous and unthreatening like a play group or a a craft group or something as scary as tagging along to a friend's home Bible study group. Is that the finish (laughs) sign? They somehow just ended up in the general orbit of our community. And here's the key point. They liked what they saw. They were attracted by it. Not by us as people, but by the kingdom values that they saw being lived out by our church, however imperfectly we do it. Some of them stuck around for a year in this kind of outer orbit. Uh, One guy, Robin, I've got permission from him to tell this story, uh, he even starred as an angel in a rather lame Christmas drama. Um, it, you know, he wasn't a believer at the stage, but he was just part of the church. Staggeringly, this didn't put him off. And a little later in the year, one night it just all clicked. He realised that he wanted to be a part of it and what it, he needed to do to be a part of it. became a follower of Jesus. He's now married one of the girls in our church and he's a key part of our youth leadership team. We love having him around. And that's how it works. Even for an ordinary, imperfect church like mine, the story of Robin, and at least a dozen others I've written down that I could tell that are pretty much the same plot line, they just show that we can be salt and light. In fact, we didn't even have to try that hard because, as I said, it's who we are. It's who you are. I reckon the hard bit, if you're a normal functioning church, the hard bit is that initial contact, isn't it? I mean, in a lot of those stories, the bit I don't know about the story is how they ended up in our orbit in the first place. And I reckon that's where we most commonly fall down. How many more of those stories, rather than a dozen? There could be a hundred if we had that initial contact. We might not be intentionally hiding our light under a bowl, but the way we go about being the church, we've managed to kind of construct this virtual bowl around us, making it hard for people to come in contact with our light or to taste our saltiness. That, in essence, is what it means to be missional, I think. It's not whether you abandon your church building and set up a coffee shop in a pub or some other kind of third space. not necessarily about abandoning the notion of church altogether and just going about doing good as part of the local community, although for some that might be their calling. But it's certainly not about setting up some slick, entertaining programs, hoping your advertising flyers and billboards will somehow draw customers. No, it's about allowing the world... Access, intentionally being who we are in a very obvious way in the most public spaces we can. Allowing others to see how we're different, to experience this reign of God we talk about within a community, to taste and see that the Lord and his people are good. So before we close the service today, I want you to turn and talk to the people around you for a couple of minutes Maybe talk about how you as an individual and how you as a believing community, how you are going to be salt and light in a way that people will see. How can you do some of the stuff that you do but do it more out there so that they might fall into the kingdom orbit, if you like, as you go about your life being the people of God? And after a while, they might come to realise that they want some of that too. So chat to the people.